Hiya, welcome to another episode of Zero Ambitions, a podcast about sustainability in the built environment. This week, it's a full house. Me, Jeff and Alex. Me, Dan, obviously. We are joined by returning champion Tanya Jennings, formerly of Ealing Council, now ensconced in Lewisham, wearing myriad hats in other situations as well. Now, we invited Tanya back because she and I had been having a uh, an interesting conversation about her perspective now. I mean, I think it's longer than 12 months since she joined us. She's moved to this new position. And since she just had an article published in Architects Journal, which is really good. It's an excellent piece about fuel poverty, COVID, inequality, and inevitably uh, retrofit. Really is excellent. I mean, for us, it's back to conversation about I mean, why it seems we're barely making a dent in resolving the massive pile of retrofit and other problems in front of us. And the crux of it is we need better roadmaps. We need to remove needless barriers. But the only way we're going to do that is inevitably by pulling together. Crux of it, we need better roadmaps. Anyway, if you don't know Tanya, uh, check her LinkedIn, check the article. It's all in the show notes. Let's away and get into the conversation. And thank you for joining us. Cheers. Okay, we'll do that. Fine, I'll do that. I'll do that. That's fine. Tanya, how are you? I'm better. I just actually have tested negative, like negative and negative. Yesterday, I was still like a thin line. So we didn't risk bringing mom over, but um, this is actually be negative. Yeah. Yeah. I got the best flesh, best fest lurgy that everybody got. And then I seem to have picked COVID up on top of that. Nice. And we were at a bonfire in Hull and our, our mates like, yeah, I've completely lost my sense of smell from COVID. And I'm just, and I don't think anybody actually thought to ask if he was testing negative. Um, and while he may have been, who knows if his wife was or their kids or so we're pretty sure we picked COVID up there on top of what I already had. Um, so yeah, it's, it's been a long damn two weeks and my yeah. mom's been here since Wednesday morning and I haven't seen her yet. So now that we've just tested negative, Andy's going to go pick her up from his parents' house. So it's great. So I'm all drugged up. I will uh, mute myself if I feel the need to cough. Thankfully, it's it's less coughing now and more just coughing stuff up. So at least it doesn't oh, go lovely. on for ages. Well, kind yeah. of. Like, it's so gross. I'm like a teenage boy with how many boxes of tissues I've gone through this week. Uh-huh. Yeah. So you're at Lewisham now. Um, how's that I working? Lewisham. It's a lot. Um, you know, I think I've been like so focused on housing retrofit. For the last four or five years, and now I'm doing everything, everything. So yeah, it's it's big. I guess that's the thing. It's a big job. I've got my big girl pants on now. And, the and, and there's of it. sorry, what? Some irony, you know. My last podcast was called Burnout. <laughs> like, yeah. There. Um. So yeah, I'm I'm reinvigorated. I now have like three more hats, but whatever. Yeah, and this is this is Tanya speaking in her capacity as none of the things rather than all of the, the individual things. So, Jeff, so the reason why we got Tanya back on today is because we saw that Architects Journal article that she wrote. Yeah. Architects Journal, it is, isn't it? Yeah, which was interesting. So that prompted me to give her a shout because we've been meaning, we've been trying to have a catch up for ages and just didn't. And then we got into a conversation about her meandering path and the fact that there are loads of common issues from the many hats that she's worn and is currently wearing, they are legion. 
you you've learned the same lessons in most roles and it is baffling how they aren't all applied (laughs) how sparingly the insights and lessons are applied the stark contrast like the stark contrast between ealing hounslow lewisham they're all trying to achieve the same goals but they're approaching it in different ways and it's not just those people it's like the other institutions that are supporting those those bodies but the reason why i picked up on the aj article was because of that i mean i think it'd be a really good place to start because presumably jeff's not read it as well because he never reads the, the aj article i read some of us i really agreed with this and then uh, then something else popped up and i got distracted i was really yeah. I, I was enjoying it though um and i took he, he loves reading about the death of poor people. <laughs> Who doesn't? It's one way to solve climate change, Dan. Yeah, <laughs> yeah Malthusian. Malthusianism will win out. And Alex yeah. has read it as well. I know that. So yeah. um, Thomas Malthus, is it, is it worth explaining for our listeners? Because some, some, a lot of people will know who he, who he was and, and, and what evil ideas he had. Um, but yeah, David Attenborough is a bit of a Malthusian, you know. Oh, really? Like, save the animals, but... We need to control the human population. Which we, all, we all have our favourites, Dan. <laughs> Hiya. Just ending the edit now, and I realised we didn't bother explaining what Malthusianism actually was. Thomas Malthus, he came up with the idea that the idea of exponential growth of population and the fact that resources that the population need don't tend to keep up with the growth of said population. He had a touch of the, the Thanos about him from the Avengers. And the reason why we're a bit sceptical of it is because it doesn't strictly stack up in all terms. And usually where it's applied, it suggests that you should keep down the numbers of poor people or folk in the global south because they're the problem. Anyway, I've included the Wikipedia page in the show notes. If you want to take a look, I'll get back to it. Do you, do you want to take an early divergence? Into- All I would say as a, a brief comment on that is uh, the stuff coming out this week in The Guardian about... Um, about the the emissions of the top one percent of the, the global population being equivalent to the bottom fifty percent, you know, suck on that Malthus, basically. I would say, you know, <laughs> um, <Sorry>. eloquent, yeah, <laughs> so eloquent as ever. This is why I love you, chaps. Yep, I'm um, right. So the bit that really stood out to me in the article, and it'd be, I think it'd be really good for you to just. Uh, talk a little bit about the article, but it was the bit where you talked about how you looked at the map of Ealing's map uh, of fuel poverty and the uh, oh, what is it? it was the is COVID it? infection rates primarily. That's it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And they were the same map. They, they are essentially the same map. And, and I guess one of the challenges is, is that we've We've always known these things about fuel poverty. I, I don't think this is actually news to anyone that living in fuel poverty causes respiratory illnesses. Uh, National Energy Action did a report on this nearly five years ago at this point that they put out, you know, sort of the definitive article of tying health to fuel poverty. So it's not that it's new information. I think what was new was having such a stark visualization that if you map fuel poverty, which is primarily going to be in areas where EPCs are low anyways, 
So I imagine an EPC map and the fuel poverty map are also pretty much the same thing when we've overlaid them. And then when you had the COVID map over it, and I guess Ealing is, it's an, I don't want to say easy example, but because there were just about a thousand people who died in Ealing, it's slightly over that, but thankfully not too much over. Uh, A thousand is, is a nice I'm going to stop using the word nice to describe anything with COVID because I literally have just tested negative for COVID today. Uh, COVID is not nice, but it was a simple way to say, if you've got, let's say, 150,000 people living in Ealing, a thousand of them are now dead due to COVID. And then you look at these maps side by side and you can kind of see that like 999 of those people were in areas of fuel poverty. That's not an exact, I don't have an exact, but you know, then you really start to see just how much where you live influences your likelihood to survive such a thing. Uh, you know, and that's, that's independent of the other things that we found in the inequality study that if you were black you were 50% more likely to die than your white neighbor, even in the same neighborhood. That, you know, there's all of these really horrific things that came out of that inequality study and different groups will have to address those. But we also know that if you're a minority or an immigrant, you're more likely to live in fuel poverty. And so all of these numbers were, were really tied together. And so I had talked about this the week maybe two weeks before the article came out at the AJ Retrofit Live event. So I was asked to speak in sort of the um, the final talk that day after uh, Chris Skidmore. And one of the questions after I had shared uh, this story about the map was, okay, well, then you went back to your counselors, your cabinet, your bosses, whomever had, you know, this sort of statutory responsibility to do something, what did they do? And I think the answer, not just at where I was working then, but across the entire nation was nothing. Because having this data and having the skills, the funding, the ability to actually then do something about it, they're not the same thing. Uh, And this is something that we'll talk a bit more about when we're talking about strategies and roadmaps to to answering these problems. Having a roadmap doesn't mean you've got the money in the bank to get there. Having a roadmap doesn't mean you suddenly know how to drive. You know, in my hopefully not too complicated metaphor about getting to net zero and solving these problems, having the answers doesn't actually give you the ability to respond to them. Uh, Just... uh... I, I agree with what you're saying, but um, uh, see, uh, you're making some very interesting points. But to play devil's advocate for a second on the two graphs um, being the same, uh, there is that old maxim in, in science that correlation is not causation. And uh, looking here at a graph showing a number of people who drowned by falling into a pool versus films Nicolas Cage appeared in, and there's a clear correlation. <laughs> so some people might. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, yeah, but some people people might cast aspersions on that graph, Jeff. You're right. But fuck them. There is an obvious, it's not just a correlation. Like, you know more about both of these subjects. You know more about 
how COVID is transmitted and you know more about the conditions. This isn't coincidence. The correlation is because of the material conditions. It, I mean, I agree. I just, I just want to, to kind of, uh, I, I, I want to be in a position where we have strong arguments to, to bat away the shite that you can face from people who, who would, who would, who would be naysayers, you know. I, I agree, and some of it is anecdotal. Um, you know, I, I guess from my own experience, I know that I grew up in field poverty. I know that I've had chronic respiratory illnesses my whole life, and I know that I've now had COVID three times, and it's you know pretty close to killed me once and it's just sucked the other two times can can i prove that the fact that my parents had to choose between heating and eating some winters caused me to you know as a 48 year old person like still have these challenges with my crappy lungs no but i'm i'm pretty sure you know, and so I think these are the challenges. There's always going to be a bit of whataboutism in these. There's always going to be conflicting priorities. And just because the doctor says your cold home is causing you to be ill does not mean you can move out of your cold home or that you can do anything about fixing it. And so I guess this is a thing. All that I can do as Tanya, human of the world who works in this field, is to say to people, the evidence we have seen from our NHS and CCG colleagues is that there was a correlation between where people lived, their ethnicity, the EPC of their homes, and how likely they were to have COVID. The The flip side of this is that Often people of minority and immigrant backgrounds are more likely to die because they are less likely to feel safe accessing healthcare. They might have actually been fine and lived had they felt they could go to the doctor. Mm. Um, you know, thankfully, that's slightly less of a problem here than, say, in the States, where doctors can just turn you away if you can't afford to pay. But it's also that we know that, you know, it's a bit like black pregnant women in the U.S. are more likely to die during their pregnancy because they are less likely to be believed by their doctors. It's not, so, it's not just in the States like that, just to be clear. And more black babies die in the U.K. But that was a recent story. Yeah, agree. So, so these are the things that we're talking about really big systemic issues. And what I'm hoping that the article has triggered and the comments I've had from people, the messages I've had from people were, this is so fucking obvious. Why are, why is this the first time I'm seeing this in print? Why was seeing you talk about this the first time somebody has said to me, oh, these two things might be related. Might. You know, can I say 100% no? But my experience of the last six to seven years working in London in these fields, people who are living in field poverty are more likely to be sick. My experience of my own body, people living in field poverty are more likely to be sick. <laughs> I suppose the point I'd make is a, uh, just uh, which, which I always thought of as interesting here, and this came up in the past in the context of of arguments around the certainty or not of, of the, the climate science. Um, I think it was George Monbiot who used to make this point that um, if you look at the link between lung cancer and smoking, the physical mechanisms through which the in inhalation of smoke into the lung causes tumors to grow hasn't been proven. Uh, but no one in their right mind would question 
uh, the causal link, you know. Um, so these things, it can be harder to mine into. What is it you think, just to be clear on specifics, and what is it you think, um, what is it about these homes and about the occupants of these homes in terms of the conditions they're in that is that is causing that uh, 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 that higher risk of, of, of COVID, for instance? So a lot of it comes down to damp and mold. We know that if you live in a home where you're more exposed to actual mold, whether it's black mold or otherwise, that those particulates can damage your lungs. Also, if you grow up where there are extremes of heat and cold, not necessarily throughout the day, but even just throughout the year, that you're more susceptible to asthma. So you might already have these underlying conditions and maybe most of the time you're fine. But then when you've got an illness like this, like a respiratory illness specifically, but also circulatory illnesses, which is why we see people stroking out essentially in overheated homes during the summer. If you've already got this sort of lifetime of conditioning, and, and you know, if especially if you're like a young child and your whole lifetime has been sent around particulates, um, which can also come from gas. And so we know that Obviously, the lower the EPC, the more likely they are to be cooking on a gas stove. We also know that a lot of um, different parts of the community, not necessarily just immigrants, but some cultural backgrounds, cooking with open flame is more important. Um, it's part of their culture. And so, therefore, they're also going to be exposed to more particulates in the home. Um, you know, where cooking on an open flame outside, not such a big deal. Cooking on an open flame in a space, um, ironically, the better insulated and more airtight it is, the more damage you're doing to yourself by cooking from an open flame. So, you know, there's there's all of these different things. But again, it could be about lack of access to healthcare. Um, just uh, if you're a renter, you're less likely to a be able to do anything about it, but you're also less likely to speak up um, about the condition in your home. So. All of these things are sort of stacking up on each other. You know, it's not just COVID. It, it can be the flu. It can just be whatever I had last winter that wasn't COVID, but was way worse than COVID. You just start doing more damage. And so every time you get sick, and this is me speaking as someone who had chronic chest infections and bronchitis as a kid, every time you get sick, it's harder to recover the next time. And then it's harder the next time. And then you're more susceptible to pneumonia, more susceptible to chest. And so it's this vicious cycle. But actually getting out of that system, getting out of your damp and moldy house, getting out of a cold house, you can recover. It's a bit like when you stop smoking, your lungs do recover. It takes a long time. Hmm. But, you know, and you might not undo some of the permanent damage, but just changing the insulation, the ventilation, especially, and then getting those particulates out of the house, you can improve. And for not very much money relative to what it costs to treat you if you keep getting sick over and over. That's fascinating. Uh, so you've hit on the ventilation point, I think is very interesting too. Um, I'm wondering, and I'd love to see research in this area. Um, we're talking presumably in a lot of cases here about underheated, underventilated homes. Um, we're talking, uh, I would love to see research to, to maybe it exists to, to look at 
let's presume we have uh you know either no natural ventilation in older homes or or um or natural ventilation hit and miss vents you know in in windows that kind of thing and extractor fans um um you know and then if people are lucky demand controlled mechanical extract ventilation in a very small number of homes we're not that that's not the condition we're talking about at all here or mvhr even less so um i wonder how common it is in in these kinds of homes uh, for these kinds of occupants, vulnerable people, to be, are they more prone? It seems obvious to me they would be uh, to blocking the vents, to switching off the extract, the isolator switches um, on the vents, on the vents, to, you know, because they can't afford air movement because that means losing precious heat. Yeah, yeah. Let's just be clear: we're not victim blaming here. Like, no, I think that's an important distinction to make because we could get into the Muslims washing their hands causing mold stuff, and of uh, course, it's a lot of old horseshit. Agreed. I mean, I, I don't know if that's true. What I do know is that if you're a vulnerable person, whether it's because you're physically disabled, mentally disabled, long-term sick, or if you're raising children or you're a carer, you are more likely to be in your home more often. And now we can also add people who work from home to that group. So all of a sudden, the people who were already the most vulnerable are in their homes more. You know, I went from being in my home maybe three or four hours plus whatever I was sleeping to 24 hours a day, basically for two years. And we've worked from home ever since, maybe go into the office once or twice a month. You know, and, and so even people who were or are pretty darn healthy, if you're only in your home for a little bit of the time, you just don't realize how much your home affects you and not just in the the mold and damp um you know anyone who's ever talked to me about where i live will know that noise pollution is a thing um <laughs> so but you know these are the things that might have affected us to some extent in 2019 are not the same things that are affecting us now because if you're in your home more you're actually more likely to have damp and mold because you're there more you're doing more laundry, you're washing more, you're cooking more at home. And so all of these things have actually exacerbated a problem that was already there and very systemic to begin with. So a lot of what, I guess what we're trying to do now, you know, sort of shifting from the, the how did we get here, all of these different programs that have happened kind of since COVID, whether that's the Green Homes Grant, the Home Upgrade Grant, the Boiler Upgrade Scheme, the Social Housing Decarbonization Scheme, the Public Sector Decarbonization Scheme, Ecofor, the Great British Insulation Scheme, all of these schemes happening at the same time are trying to address the same issue, which is energy efficiency. And every one of them has an underwritten line about reducing fuel poverty and improving health. So, you know, from the, even before we had this kind of collated data, whether it's corroborated or not, from like day one of the kind of jobs creation piece of this, Bayes as was, Desnes, they all knew that fuel poverty should underwrite all of this work, that it is an, a desired outcome, you know, not guaranteed, but it's a desired outcome for all of these different programs we've had. There's the challenge, of course, is in the actual delivery, but it's also trying to help all of these residents, whether they're owner occupiers, vulnerable people, tenants, 
et cetera, trying to help them understand without the victim blaming, you know, to say your home is making you sick and that's not your fault. That whether you can afford and are willing to do it, um, whether you need assistance in doing it, whether you need grants or green finance or whatever we come up with, that something has to give. We have to improve your homes. And there's a whole lot of other things that we're trying to achieve with that. You know, there is energy security and all of these other things. But for me, the driving force is I think everyone deserves warm toes. It's just that simple. I don't think that people should be freezing their butts off in their own home or overheating and sweltering to the point where they're making themselves, you know, at risk of having a heart attack or stroke at a very young age or being a child who grows up in these homes who then has a lifetime of issues because I'm somebody who's had a lifetime of issues. And a lot of it is because we had an open fireplace. And when we couldn't afford to turn the gas on, everything was heated by the fireplace. And I mean, like properly open, you know, doors open, you're breathing it in. These are all these things stack up and we have solutions to all of them. We've got more money than we could even spend. We just don't have the people to do it, the people who understand what needs to be done, the people to make sure it's done well, all of these things. So can we can we talk about that a bit? Because I thought that was that was the really interesting part of what came out of the conversation that we had. Because we say we all say forever, loads of people in the industry say all the time, we have all the solutions. Like we know what the answers are, we know what needs to be done. But there seem to be the same barriers every time to fulfilling I don't know, our obligations or the political, moral, economic, otherwise, whatever. Like using the 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 case of the funding mechanisms for attempting remedial works retrofit to make so to address whichever target happens to be given to us at any time, be it like carbon emissions reduction, energy efficiency, fuel poverty, or health. Because we all get this all those targets are all applied in different ways or with different uh degrees of importance, even though the answer's the same for all of them, for fuck's sake. Like we were talking about with Cedric Burgers last week, energy is the apex predator of building design. If you fix the demand reduction, all of a sudden, all the other issues like health, wellness, fabric integrity, like like the wolves being introduced to Yellowstone Park, like the, the deer populations reduced, the forests rise up, beavers appear, the rivers change shape, and all of a sudden, so, all ecosystems much, much happier. Just to be clear, Dan, what you're, you're not saying retrofit your house and beavers will appear in your living room. Uh, I mean, no. beavers disappeared in Ealing. They didn't just appear, they were released. So maybe, <laughs> yeah. again, is it causation? I don't know. But, um, but we retrofit some houses, and now there's beavers. You do the math. If, if, if that is the recommended application, and it is evidence-based, well, so be it. But uh, in a non-facetious angle on that, the number of homes that are built up, being built on floodplains across particularly the south of the UK, it is absurd. Like, because everyone knew they were. And reintroducing beavers to the, the landscape to affect the natural ecosystem, that will mitigate an awful lot of those floodplain concerns just because of the way they manage the rivers for people. 
It's like an evolutionary response. Anyway, blah, blah, blah. Back onto roadmaps. We all know what the actual solutions are. We just don't know how to deliver them. And one of the peculiarities that we've encountered a bunch of times, uh, which I'm sure you've, I mean, you felt you were complaining about it last time we had you on, Tanya, was that the application process is horrific. And it seems to be a barrier to achieving anything. When So Dan and I were chatting the other day about this and bear with me for this sort of long analogy. I sort of thought, and I'm starting to think of net zero as Manitoba. So I'm American. I know that Manitoba is in Canada. It might be a place I want to visit someday. I've never been there. Don't know anything about it. I just like to say Manitoba and it's a place I want to go so I can say I've been to Manitoba. If you're from here, you've maybe never even heard of Manitoba, but somebody says Manitoba and all of a sudden you want to go there too. So you pass a resolution. I'm going to Manitoba. I don't know where it is. I don't know how to get there. I don't know how much it costs, what it takes, what it looks like. I don't even know what will happen when I get there. Like I might love Manitoba. It might be the worst decision I've ever made. I have no idea. And I think net zero is the same way. Like all of a sudden, everybody wants to get to net zero. We don't quite know what that is. Is it net zero energy? Is it net zero carbon, net zero waste, net zero water? I don't know. I've got net zero in my job title now. I just want to get to net zero. And some of the organizations that I've worked with and for, they really want to get to Manitoba, but they don't want to hire a travel agent. They don't actually want to budget for it until they know what it's going to cost. And then they'll come up with the budget. Uh, They don't even want to buy a map. They just want somebody to tell them Manitoba is there. I'm going. And now I work for a great organization who they've got a pretty good sense of where Manitoba is. So at Lewisham, we're doing a housing retrofit strategy. We're doing a school's decarbonization plan. We're doing our local area energy plan, our heat network plan, a corporate regeneration plan. And they're hiring consultants to talk to the best minds of our generation, to talk to our internal staff, to do stakeholder engagement, all of these things. And by the end of all of that, we'll have a pretty good idea of where Manitoba is and how to get there, which is, again, not the same to being able to afford it, but we'll at least have a fully costed plan to get to net zero. And then we've got to make the business case to actually pay for it and wait for funding opportunities. And But at least we'll be able to say, here's our proactive plan for reactive funding. So we will know if all of a sudden all of the money is for heat networks. Oh, we've got two heat networks ready to go. Let's do that. And if all of the funding is for single glazing windows, okay, well, here's where our single glazing windows are. Here's what has to happen around that. The challenge with all of these application processes, especially SHDF and PSDS, you have to have already done all that work before you can even apply. And even at Ealing, where I had already run an SHDF program, put in a successful bid, was halfway through delivering it, I didn't get SHDF2 funding. And I'm going to say I, we didn't get it, but I wrote 99% of the bid. And that was the problem. I wrote 99% of the bid. 
I've never been to Manitoba. I only have a vague sense of where it is. And in this context, I didn't know what the EPCs were for half of our stock. I didn't know what assessments we had to have done. And the people who had already done that work, like Lewisham, got funding. I didn't. And, you know, ended up looking for a new job because a lot of people were counting on that. And and so I think these are the challenges is for all of these applications, you have to do so much work before you can even bid that a lot of people might have great ideas, great ambitions. But if you don't have the funding ahead of time to put that work in and get the bid support, you can't even launch. You can't even get an agreement to do anything. On that point, do you think the people controlling the funding who are assessing the applications, do you think they know where Manitoba is? They just want people to say that they're on the way to Manitoba. Actually reaching there doesn't really matter. In a sense, it does. Like, But until there is any sense of accountability, uh, any actual consequences for the lack of actions, that makes no odds, does it? In our super fun metaphor that we've created here, the people in government work for the cruise lines and the airlines. They want people to buy tickets to start their trip. What happens after that ticket spot, I don't think they're as concerned about. I actually think that the Department of Energy is full of true believers. I've spoken to them. I've talked to these civil servants. They do want us to get there. They've got ideas for how to get there. They are very much ruled by Treasury saying, you need to spend X amount of funding by March 31st or you lose it. You can't carry it forward. You can't come begging for more. You've got this money for this amount of time. Even in a two-year program, you've got to spend this much by the first year or you'll lose it. And we know that's not how these programs work. I had tickets to go to Nottingham last weekend. Not Manitoba, but I was pretty excited about it. I had a whole bunch of non refundable tickets, and then I got COVID and I had to cancel it and I lost all the money. And all the way through these programs, that has happened to people. You know, we had grand ambitions, and especially the first round of Green Homes Grant. My God, the amount of just complete neighborhoods we couldn't go into because the COVID number spiked, you know. People wanted us there. We had appointments set. We had to stop. And, you know, we would just get an email from government saying nobody can work in Brent this week. The numbers are too high. That doesn't mean they gave you another week at the end. Mm. You just had to try as quick as you could to shift things to another area that was safe to work in. It's it's something that we see in um, in our user research is the amount of people who are in decision making positions. They have biases and preconceptions of what they think the world it looks like and and it's not it's not criticism but you know we are very limited by who we interact with who we talk to who what we read and if you're not ready to challenge those preconceptions and biases you're going to end up putting in these rules and regulations that are going to be completely inadequate and i think that's what you're describing it's unfortunately fundamental bit of human behavior and that's the other thing that we have to tackle is that that need to say no 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 i know this i know it's my gut instinct it's my gut feeling or I've been speaking to enough people that I know about this, so we're just going to go in that direction. I've had enough information for now, so let's stop there. And that, I think, is a big problem for us, for the whole for the whole industry. It is. And I, and I guess the challenge, too, is 
I still really want to go to Manitoba. Mm. But actually, Alberta's a lot closer. It costs less. It's really pretty. You know, my parents went there on their honeymoon. I'm told it's lovely. Alberta might be the place to go. But in my brain, I just want to go to Manitoba. And I think net zero is that way. That maybe we don't have to get to net zero. Maybe we get to net 12. You know, like, I think this is a challenge. And it's been the challenge for a lot of these programs. Like, it's kind of goes back to this debate about is energy sprung the best? Is Enerfit the best? Are we just aiming for 90 kilowatt hours per meter squared? And of course, every one of these funding opportunities has a different net target like that. And maybe 90 is great. It, it's certainly better than 180. You know, we we had some of our energy sprung houses when we did testing. They were at 240 kilowatt hours per day for like a three bedroom house. It's wild how much heat loss there was. So I, I think this is one of the challenges with all of these programs. Net zero is a great aim, but not for everybody, not for every house. We don't need to get every house to net zero. Yeah. If we do other things and decarbonize and all of this, and it, it sort of goes back to, you know, the fabric first approach as well. Fabric first does not mean you retrofit the fabric before you do anything else. Yeah. It means you think about the fabric before you think about anything else. That you have to understand the fabric before you start trying to work on the heating system and if you haven't thought about the fabric, you fail. It doesn't mean every house in England needs EWI. Yep. So what you've described there is two slogans. Like there, that's where they're successful. Net zero, it's a bollocks. Like it's a, a wonderful aspiration. But if you're talking net zero, how are you making that calculation? Like you can shuffle numbers around on a spreadsheet to deliver the total you want. Fabric first, hope love alliteration, don't they? Like fabric first. So when Kit Knowles was on, he said fabric second, not fabric first, purely to emphasize the the idea that design needs to be tackled initially. So when we're thinking about the design aspect, and again, this comes back to what we spoke about before in determining roadmaps, the bit that is missing up front is the assessment part. So this, and this is partly because there isn't the resource to do it appropriately. Everyone understands there are problems with the building stock. As much as typologies might be common, the practical considerations, the material considerations of how to address them are different from property to property because you don't know what's happened within it, how it was treated, what adaptations have been made, how it was misused, how it's been well used, how it's been updated, upgraded, whatever. So you need to commit to... Right, I was talking... So we were at the Homes UK exhibition yesterday. Uh, Me and Alex went down there. And I met uh, Matthew Ratcliffe of Osmosis ACD up in Preston. So retrofit contractor. I'm trying to cultivate some friends up in Preston at the moment. So anyone else out there who's from Preston, give us a shout. We were just catching up. I'd met him a couple of years ago and we've not been in touch since. Like, how's business? How's it going? And what they described was they were up to their eyes in work because just as we discussed with you last time you were on, Tanya, you had deadlines to meet, money to spend, and you needed to get cracking. So people are asking them to fix problems. And before they can fix problems, we've got to work out what the problems are. So they've got to do the survey. So at the moment, they're trying to get hundreds of surveys done to work out what they actually can do. And this is endemic. 
Um, sorry, Jeff. I'm going to have to leg it in a minute because I've got to go and pick up the kids. My wife's still got a, a buckety ankle. So, uh, but I just wanted before I legged it, there's a couple of things that occurred to me. Um, the process in terms of applications and so on is is clearly something that needs fixing. But it feels to me like there should be some thought put into mapping out. Ignore the whole f- funding rigmarole for a second, and it can, you know. What are the kinds of solutions that we would be implementing? How would that work out? And then, um, and then, then look at what the impact is of of the funding system uh, on how it assists or obstructs that. No, no, this no. is a really important piece because one of the things that we've had a lot of conversations about are around paths and trustmark lodgements, and the insane amount of reporting that is required by these programs outweigh the benefit of the funding. Um, I, I have different feelings on this, I guess, given the different day, but it is so challenging. And and this is not me saying I'm against PAS or against Trustmark. I think they they need help in both cases, but I do see the value in them. I think the challenges are like one of the projects that we're doing right now um, in Lewisham. There are a lot of converted flats. Well, you can only be PAS compliant and lodge with Trustmark if you've surveyed every one of the flats within the building, even if they're not going to receive any works. So where we've got leaseholders, we've got to talk or compel the leaseholders into letting us in to do a full EPC and retrofit assessment on their flat, even if the only works that are going to be done are to the communal block. And it's a real challenge, but it's also a huge risk. We can't start on the other flats until we get into those. And then it becomes this question of, is it ever really worth taking a a leaseholder to court to get access for a one-hour survey and will that cost more than the 10,000 pounds of grant that we might get at the end if we get them assessed and the building still qualifies following the assessment and we can then get the work done before the ridiculously short deadline. And so when you're talking about a scheme that might have 150, 300, 1,000 properties, you've got to be doing this math all the way through the process. How many people is it worth taking to court to compel them to let us in to be able to do an entire block? It might always be zero, but sometimes it might not. You know, if you've got one or two people holding up works to a hundred, say you're doing a high rise block and you've got to get into every single one of them. So these are the things that on paper, it all looks great. You should definitely assess everybody in the building. The reality on the ground of how many you know, attempts at contact you have to have, the evidence of attempts of contact, how many appointments they've got to miss before you take legal action, and then how long can that take? And was it actually in their tenancy or leaseholder agreement that they have to let you in to do a survey if you're not doing works on their houses? This is the kind of complexity that, you know, nobody thinks about. And 
when I was growing up playing retrofit Barbie, that's not a thing. <laughs> Um, you know, and thought, oh, I want to do retrofit when I grow up. I can't wait to have to take leaseholders to court. Like it just, it's not a thing. Nobody wants this. Nobody wants this to be their job. Even if you grew up with, you know, legally blonde Barbie, you don't want this job. No one wants this. Well, legally blonde Barbie might actually want to, to, to take the leaseholders to court in fairness. Um, but um uh, I'm just. I'm gonna. I will leg it at this point. I just think you know. Uh, I'll leave on this this note, and then I'll drop the mic in a very tack-handed way. Um, uh, we expect do, nothing do, less. Do we? Do we not just want to simplify the process? Find people uh, who have expertise. Find companies who are willing to take responsibility and who can be sued, can be on the hook, and give them leeway. Let them bloody loose. You know, as long as they can be sued, um, and and you can put some controls over them. It's, it's, I don't know. Anyway, listen. On that note. I'll love you and leave you, um, and uh, and yeah, try not to destroy them, Tanya. By the end of this, you know, yeah, okay. I want you to want some kind of a podcast for yeah, at the end right. of it. Yeah, love you too. Bye. Take care. Bye. So the bit, the bit I was getting to when Jeff rudely interrupted me <laughs> was ostensibly that point. Like, what one needs is to build partnerships yeah. beforehand and, and- to seize the opportunities as they arise. I was talking about this the other day, like learn from what the right wing do, what Naomi Klein documents in the shock doctrine, like the right wing, they get ready to seize whatever disaster occurs, be it an emotional disaster or a practical disaster. They will, they will sweep in and exploit the resources. So the Iraq war, they swept in, stole the oil. Like when the levees broke in New Orleans, get all the black people out. Let's redevelop the land. Like, perfect. Magnificent. All these people are displaced. We don't have to make the effort, but we know what to do to to capitalise on it. And in thinking about uh, retrofit as an insurgency, as I often do, this is, we should be building our own retrofit militia. We should be allying factions with one another and sharing the, what is it, the Jolly Rogers cookbook? Like, all of this practical understanding for how to address... In my official capacity as the Lewisham Council employee, I must disavow sharing <laughs> the... Uh, <laughs> no, I I mean, I, I definitely get what you're saying. And, you know, this is one of the reasons I've got involved with the National Retrofit Hub and the, you know, Don't Waste Buildings group. And, you know, a lot of these... Uh, I absolutely think we, we need a skills-driven thing you know and i guess this is a challenge if the if sort of the conservatives and the right want this all to be about jobs creation and they do um if they want it to all be about increasing value to buildings rather than value to people and i think they do um fine you know i because i don't think they're dichotomous i think we can improve the value of buildings and improve the value to people and I think we can create jobs. I would just like to see those jobs as the actual people do, getting their hands dirty and doing the work rather than the consultants who are hired to monitor the consultants in our monthly reporting sessions. Uh, you know, I, it's like how many consultants deep do you have to be to keep your hands clean if you're if you're these funders? And these are the challenges is trying to get everybody to see the value of this. I I just don't understand 
how retrofit and energy efficiency became a partisan issue. I just don't get it. I don't <laughs> think rich people like cold toes just because they can afford to turn the heat up. It doesn't mean they want to spend the money on heat. They'd much rather spend it on bombs. You know, it's just, (laughs) that's not probably true. Um, You know, so I guess this is the thing is if we can find ways to make people understand not just the end goal, but all of the benefits along the way, whether that is the job creation, the education opportunities, and the health benefits, you know, which are fairly rapid, um, you know, I don't want to just play on people's emotions. It's all well and good for me to talk about looking at a map and sobbing like a baby because I did and I still do. And, you know, to some people that will appeal to them, not to everybody. And I get that. And we have to find different ways to do this messaging, whether it's alliterative or a three-word slogan. But at the same time, we also have to make it harder for them to dismiss because it is easy to say net zero is killing us and net zero is expensive. It's a lot harder to say improving people's lives so they don't die of a stroke at 40 during the hot summer. It's harder to oppose that. It's harder to come out and say, I support cutting funding for saving grandmas from dying. You know, maybe I mean, some people. But look, will, but. the far right don't use three word slogans. They have 14 words, which we are all well aware of. Like they, and if you aren't, don't bother Googling them. It's white supremacy garbage. But they are prepared. They are amazing at identifying symptoms and the solutions they have for the symptoms whilst they. They scapegoat groups. The resolution is much more complex than that. Like the way they go about it in terms of recruitment and organizing, they're really complex plans that they put into operation, which people working within energy efficiency, they don't. They do ground grassroots organizing. They speak to people about their very real and material concerns that have emotional manifestations. So I don't think we need to worry about uh, the the three word slogan. If you speak to people, yeah. if you ignore the the, the the three word solutions, you speak to people about their practical material concerns. You address them directly. They will listen. We will make you more comfortable. We will make you warmer. Your horrible home. We will make it better. Now we don't have to go blaming immigrant populations for this calamity. We can blame government. If you look at all right, and Amy out. If you look at the Jeremy Corbyn challenge to the premiership in 2017 it was successful on its own terms you know coming from such he he closed the gap and he turned it into a two horse race because he did that and the parallels between what grassroots far rights people have done historically man you can see those techniques working that's how brexit got dealt with look at all these problems this is the answer If you go to people and you speak to them about their issues and how you can help resolve them properly, they will listen. And if it's as practical as this, like. I I think you're right. I think the challenge that we're facing is that we're talking about bespoke solutions. So 
every house is different and every C-rated house is different and every B-rated house is different. And, you know, my house might be a C because I've got cavity wall and insulation and it's pretty comfortable. Yours might be a Swiss cheese house that's got solar panels on it. It's a C, but you're still freezing your nanes off. And I think this is the challenge is that if we just go to everybody and say, everybody should have an EPCC house to start and then we'll do better. You might be like, yeah, my house is a C and I'm freezing my butt off. And then you tell your your friends and your neighbors, hey, my house is a C. Don't believe this. Like getting to C is nothing. Well, that might, you know, because every every EPCC is different. They It doesn't say anything about comfort levels. And so the messaging is really challenging when we have these hard and fast targets and KPIs for different projects, whether that's as a nation, whether it's as a borough, whether it's even just in a neighborhood, we're going to get the whole neighborhood to EPCC. Okay, but what does that really mean? And how do you get a young person that we want and need to come into the sector to get excited about getting houses to EPCC? Oh, yay. When I grow up, I want to make houses EPCC. Do you know what? I think I think you could have more chance of getting the EPCC Barbie uh, game going than trying to change the culture of our society today. I think there is a far better chance of having relentless education culture shift at the moment. I just don't think, as a society, we are actually willing or able to comprehend the shit that we are we are in right now. I mean, we're all talking about it, but as a society, I don't think that we're obviously speaking the same language. We're not. So. I think, yes, again, the younger generation are probably our best chance. But I think that we have to continue what we're doing as well. Because what I'm seeing there is that we are talking about a lot of problems, but we're also trying to address a lot of things at the same time. And it, unfortunately, I don't think it's going to happen overnight. I don't think anyone is fooling themselves that we're going to suddenly just change and everything's going to be okay. But I think that we have got to give all these um, these things a, a chance to, to try to, to succeed or fail to, to basically find out what's going to rise up out of the top out of all this. That also is, we're going to have to go through that process of turmoil before we come out the other side with successful solutions that actually start having an impact. Yeah, well, the bit, the bit I'm coming to in my thinking is that we shouldn't be, we know what the crack is with residents. So your the two maps, as we described at the beginning, they're the same map. We know what the problems are there. The problem we face now is the people like Tanya, they should be the client, as it were. They should be the user. Yeah, damn straight. But they should be the people whose problems we should be trying to resolve because we know what all the solutions are. We need to be working with folk like Tanya and uh, I won't name names just in case. <laughs> <laughs> um, but this is one of the but- reasons we're looking at neighborhood scale retrofit as well because neighborhood retrofit one of the advantages is kind of getting the the multi-tenure, tenure agnostic programs going. And, and But really, it's about if everybody on a block or in a block, <laughs> depending, you know, um, if you're doing like terrace houses or an actual just single building, if everybody in a specific small area has these improvements, maybe it's not all the way to net zero carbon. Maybe it's just... I could actually take the jumper off in my house during December, you know, like maybe not every day. Maybe I like wearing a jumper, especially an ugly Christmas sweater, but you don't have to. And I guess that's the thing. It's it's giving people the choice. And right now, most people just don't have the choice. You can't take your jumper off. 
And so if everybody in a block felt comfortable just living in their own skin, I am absolutely convinced things like antisocial behavior and domestic violence will be reduced. I just know this in my soul as someone who grew up poor watching my parents fight about money. I know that if we can solve these issues, the knock-on effects are huge. And I just want for other people, especially children, to grow up without having to cower in their bedroom or hide behind the couch while their parents fight about money, which is almost always tied to energy and food. And if you think about the fights that you witness growing up, if you're unfortunate enough to have them, they are always going to start from this place. And if you take that stress away and kids aren't growing up with that, then you've just broken a cycle. And I just believe it's that easy. If you give people worn toes, they don't fight about heat. It is that easy, but executing the plan, because there is no plan, there is no roadmap. That's the difficult part. The bit I'm trying to get to is if folk like you collaborate, build partnerships, share knowledge, build one plan, like insurgents, like these, these multiple militia, you can enable the opportunity to execute these plans whereby people get warmer homes. Yeah. Like, and it's it's about and- case studies and learning from each other and having, you know, having these public roadmaps. And we have some, you know, I mean, obviously Levy's roadmap is the Bible. Um, it it will always need updating. But it, it's more about the granular stuff where because I remember you talking about the SHDF funding, like having to cost out to a level of minute detail which wasn't practical because if anyone's worked in construction and everyone who's listening to this presumably has the job that's specced out in the designs is different to the one that happens on site whether you're working on new build or retrofit it's always the case if you're building it up or knocking it down it's never the same as what they said it's always different so what one and needs there's to- no adaptation. And I guess this is something we're really struggling with so many of these programs right now. Um, and I did actually sort of publicly call the department out on this the other day because your funding KPIs are locked in two months in advance. So if I say this month in January, I'm going to spend half a million pounds in capital delivery and then I don't spend it. I still have to evidence that I spent half a million pounds in January because it's locked in. I have to draw down that funding. And I I raised my hand and I just said, I just want to be really clear that you're publicly saying to all of us who are running these schemes, we have to lie to you. Yeah. Well, this is it. You're telling me to put the lie in writing. And then when I actually have the receipts somewhere down the line to come back and say, oh, I found the receipts. We need to build a militia of administrators to smash the bureaucracy. Sorry, Alex. No, I, w- I wanted to ask you, Tanya. Why? Why is that the case? Why? Why is the this the system? They have told Treasury what they will spend. So that, you know, and this again goes back to for, for a program like SHDF, and and this current version is quite different to previous versions. We have a handler who has a handler. They both report to Desnes and. We have no direct communication with Desnes. We have to go through our SPOCs. I have no idea what that stands for. So 
we're telling them what we're going to spend. They're monitoring to say that they're following the company line. And then Desnes are going back to Treasury saying, we're going to spend this much this month. And then Treasury says, okay, I'll write you a check. And if you come in anything less, there's hell to pay. And so that's just one program. Mm. So if you've got all of these different programs, I mean, I get it. Treasury has to budget, but they also don't. I mean, let's be honest. They just don't. They can print money. They can make money. They can make money disappear. Nobody really cares. It doesn't exist. It's all a social construct. But the the challenge in terms of delivery is that if I'm trying to be honest and open about the challenges for delivery, what we actually need, what we're actually doing, I can say, actually, we're quite delayed. We've had access issues. We've had you know contract issues, whatever the issues are. But it's one thing for me to say that if I then have to put in writing, oh, yeah, I've spent that half a million pounds and then something goes wrong and I haven't spent that half a million pounds, then I'm on the hook for half a million pounds. And so it's this cycle and it's not just a one borough thing. It's it's the whole system is tied up in all of these little lies. And so then when the actual reporting comes out and they're like, oh my gosh, nobody's actually delivered anything. Well, of course nobody's delivered anything because we're so hamstrung. And so much prep has gone into these programs. You know, if you think about the work that the SHRA did, SHRA, Social Housing Retrofit Assessment, I think that um, was done on behalf of BASE. There were all of these meetings ahead of the bid windows. And I'm sure they're ongoing right now. I'm not bidding for SHDF 2.2 because I can't be arsed. All of these things go in to say, let's talk about what your capacity is. What skills do you need? What assessments do you need? And again, that's great. Everybody should be doing that. And the, the most helpful document from the last round of SHRA that I didn't see until way too late to actually use it was a a just sort of a matrix of who holds this data, how much lead time would they need to get it to you, and would they have the ability to translate that data into a sort of form that would suit the actual bid. And you were supposed to do that months in advance. This is the person who holds the EPC data. They could collate it and give me a paragraph and a one pager about what it is. Great. Here's the person who holds the heating data and they could collate it. La la la. It's excellent if you've got three to six months to map that out, get everybody agreed, and then they all deliver it on time. The reality is. The morning the bids do, you're in a meeting and you're literally crying, asking people to help you, pulling people in who don't know anything about the project. And then you submit it 13 minutes before the deadline. And then you sit at your desk and cry for two hours. And then you don't get the funding anyways. And you rage quit your job. So this sort of systemic stress around the bid process, especially when you have this, not just once a year or every two years, but every three to four months, if you're doing PSDS, SHDF, HUG, LCSFLE, you know, all these different acronyms, the bid windows are just nonstop. And I've yet to meet a single borough who just has a person whose job is bid writer. You know, it's 
everybody's job all the time. And yeah, you can just throw money at consultants to have them write your bids. And sometimes you'll even then be able to contract them to actually run the bid for you. But as with most consultancies, who starts it won't be the one to end it because people churn. And then you've got, you know, this constant bringing new people into the scheme and getting them on board. And I don't know what the, the solution, like, I don't, I don't know how to get out of this boom and bust cycle other than to have something like we have for decent homes where they just say, here is a billion D pounds, please to fix stuff. Come back to us five years from now and tell us what you fixed. That'd be nice. That's why I keep going on about this, the the Jolly Rogers cookbook, or uh, for a contemporary audience that wasn't using Amiga floppy disks for this sort of stuff, the Anarchist cookbook, where you already have like a, a plan for how to address these questions. So the questions are fundamentally like, how do we cost the thing in a simple way so we can extract the data and dump it into the next thing? Presumably, there's someone in some local authority who's modeled it. Presumably, there are contractors who work with local authorities who've suffered this problem, and they've got bored of answering the same questions again. They've worked out to model it on their end, and they can just press button, retrofit button, retrofit funding button. How many people? How many units? Boom, there you go. So you can factor in the economies of scale. The problem you've got is that there aren't folk working cross-sector, cross-department, cross-discipline who are sharing this information. And that's why I I keep banging on about the militia part. Like we're getting closer. You know, I mean, I guess this is the thing is like our housing retrofit strategy is aiming to do that. So, you know, I mean, and you'll be shocked to learn I'm kind of blunt. Yeah. I just said, if you come (laughs) back to me and say your issues are money, time and people, I won't pay you. I know my (laughs) issues are money, time and people thinks. Um, Can you now give me an order of operations. But even that is so hard. How do you define worst first? Is it worst fabric, worst energy cost, worst overall health of an area which is likely to be impacted by the houses? So we've got to first define how we're defining these things, and then we can do an order of operations. So, you know, it's not just about retrofit all your ENF homes. Gee, I hadn't thought of that. It's retrofit these easier, not easiest, but easier homes, get the low hanging fruit out of the way and then do these. And, you know, or it's an area based approach. Let's just fix this area. So we're trying to get deeper into it and to have, you know, it won't be you're going to spend 82,009 pence on this property. It'll be these hundred homes are probably going to cost you 50 grand to get up. Uh, you know, these hundred homes are probably going to cost you 70 grand. You know, it, it is higher level, but at least then we can have that proactive reactive report so that we do at least know, don't think about these houses for 30 years. Don't think about these houses for 20 years. Like these are the ones. These are the ones where we know we've got damp and mold. These are the ones where we're getting constant complaints, either from the tenants or residents or the neighboring tenants and residents. Hey, I've got damp coming through my wall. I know it's not actually on my side. Like what's happening? So we're trying to get to that. 
And my hope is that when our report is done, we can then share it with, you know, our friends and colleagues and say, here it is, report in a can. Just say, I want that. Here's my data. Don't go do all the journal research bit that you've done for them. Just just replicate it for me. There's still procurement processes. You know, I can't just say, hire my consultants that we've just hired. They're the only ones who can do this. But I, I think that, you know, to some extent, we do want to just say, could you just do that for everybody? You know, because there's, there's, I guess there's precedent for it. You know, if you think about what parity projects have done with Chrome portfolio pathways, whatever you want to call it. At one point, London councils and GLA just paid for every borough in London to have access to Chrome at the time. And everybody got access for like a year or two. So everybody at least had a basic understanding. You know, they, they've made lots of improvements to them. And now you can actually, you know, hire them, give them your more specific data, and they drill down more and all of these things. But at least for a little window of time, everybody had that. And I think most people still have access to it. Most of us have realized it's pretty invaluable, actually. London Councils, with their, uh, you know, new sort of lines of working and retrofit, Jack. Garofsky, uh, Jack, is now in charge of the retrofit bit. So we've talked a bit about, is London Council's the right place to be a repository for these case studies? Are they the ones who should be leading the, here's a list of shovel-ready projects. Hey, I see that you want to do an underfloor project. Did you know they're doing an underfloor project? Maybe if you all went and did an underfloor project, yeah. it would be less expensive. So, you know, we're, we're thinking about who can be that, that center hub, you know, so that we're, we're all just, especially in London, we're 33 spokes on a wheel and everybody has to get from point A to point B. But that doesn't actually mean that we just follow our own spoke, you know, like we actually could web together and be a stronger whole because if you just have one spoke on a wheel, you don't really have a wheel. <laughs> you just have two crazy loops. Yeah. So w trying to integrate that going forward, you know, it's not just about lessons learned. I'm so tired of lessons learned. It's the lessons learned are don't do this on your own. You can't. You can't afford it. You don't have enough people. Why are you trying? The lesson learned is we need each other. We we need to collaborate. We need to share the details, you know, not the people details, not Mrs. Smith has this problem, but the my Mrs. Smith and your Mrs. Smith have really similar problems. Let's tackle them in the same way. Yeah, right. So um, we need to wrap up now. We've been we're going long, I think. So it's a good place to end. begin our end. Alex, did you have, you were jumping in? Yeah, I just wanted to, to ask you because I know, Tanya, that you you agree with us that we need to talk more to people, like actual real people and not sending out surveys. What have you learned from talking to residents? Because I think that we've spoken a lot and you've actually spoken quite a bit about systems and processes, which was you know what we're here to talk about. But there is another aspect, which is people have a lot of the answers. They live in these places. It's like, I remember my dentist telling me, no, I listen to my patient. He tells me which which tooth hurts. It's not just because a scan says this that I'm going to say, I'm sorry, it's just a scan. So I'm not going to believe you because you're just a person with the, the pain. Oh, what have I learned? 
don't try to do this shit in occupied houses because it sucks for everybody. I wish. I wish we could only ever do void properties. If we did, our lives would be so much easier. But that's not really the reality. And I think the biggest challenge, certainly what I learned from Energy Strong, is people will feel like you're doing this to them. Even if you're doing it for them, with them, even if they've been on every step of the journey with you, they, by the end, are going to feel like you have done something to them. And I'm still not quite sure how to get around that. I know that if you don't have resident engagement events every single month, even if you don't think you need them, you need them. You just do. You have to give people a chance to vent because if they don't vent to you, they will vent to each other. And then all of a sudden, one complaint becomes 30. Oh, I have the same problem. Oh, my guy didn't show up that day either. Oh, there's a crack in my plaster as well. Even if you've already told everybody, all of the cracks in your plaster will be fixed. We're doing major works. Cracks will always happen. We knew that was going to happen from day one. It was always the plan to fix it. It doesn't matter. Once that crack appears, everybody has a crack. And everybody wants to know, when is it going to be fixed? And everybody's going to say, stop works. There's a crack. And this is the thing, is that if you don't already know how to talk to people about that, not just to say, I told you there was going to be a crack, but to say, can you send me a picture of the crack? Can you tell me the day or at least the week the crack started? Because we want to make sure that the contractors know it wasn't already there. You know, this is why we took pictures before we started so that we all have a record, not just we, the council, not just them, the contractor, but that you so that everybody knows this is where the picture of that wall is. And here's how we're going to fix it. Here's when we're going to fix it. Not the day. I can't say. December 3rd, your crack will be fixed. But two weeks after this last piece of work is done, that's when we'll come back to make sure everything's settled, you know, so that you can kind of give people this sense that they aren't just on their own. Because even if you think you're holding their hand through it, you're just never doing enough. And that's not very reassuring. Like we all want to feel like we're doing enough. We're never doing enough. You know, and especially if you're doing a project for hundreds or thousands of people, I have learned very much the hard way. When thousands of people have your number, they will call you. Yeah. And this is why the coalition piece is so important, because you you can't be the only person they know. And I guess this is a challenge of being Tanya, human of the world, who's very easily Googleable. I'm at a different council now and have residents, not even from the borough I used to work in, but from one of the coalition boroughs who have found me where I am. And and I still want to help. Like, I am freaking committed. But I will never stop being Tanya who ran Ealing's Energy Sprung Project. Those people, I had someone from that project, a resident, add me on LinkedIn yesterday. And she's lovely. I'm excited to know her forever. But this is the thing is we're not working in a vacuum anymore. We are a very connected world. And I will always be the person who sat in their living room and told them this project was going to be great. Just you wait. 
but it's still not done. Yeah. And they're still waiting for it to be great. And that winds me up. <laughs> I can imagine. I want but, it. but I think this is a really important, important point to make is that also we have to all remember that retrofit, again, is not just a process. It's a highly, highly emotional journey. And you've just hit it on the, on the head there that we, people are going through a journey that's highly emotional, that is not always going to be positive, unfortunately. But if we forget that part, I think we're missing a massive part of the puzzle to achieving the solution. And on that note, we're going to sign out. Uh, sign out, sign off. Any final short words, Tanya? Few. <laughs> I think the thing I just want people to remember is none of us are in this alone. Sometimes it feels like it when you're the one crying at your desk or trying to meet a deadline and you've not had lunch in three days. We have a massive cohort and not just in the UK. There's people all over the world who are trying to do what we're trying to do. And I guess this is one of the reasons that I keep coming back to you guys, that I keep getting connected to these national schemes, even though my focus now is in a very specific borough in South London. I live in West London. I have friends in the North. I've got friends everywhere. I don't want people to think that you have to have all the solutions. We have the solutions. We just have to not be afraid to say, help, like, show me what you did, what you did. And not just in like a big sense, share your templates, share your spreadsheets, you know, take out the GDPR stuff, but like show people how you got to where you are. Because that's really the only way we're going to solve any of this stuff. Also, yeah. and wear a mask. COVID is still out there, man. <laughs> All right. So join the, the National Retro Fit Hub. If you're interested, get in touch with them. That is an excellent place to, to start. It's an e excellent central point, a hub, no less, to share this information. It's easy to find. Just Google it. I'm sure I'll put it in the show notes when I was editing this. Uh, can, right. can I also just plug um, the Association of Local Energy Officers? You don't actually have to have energy officer in your title to join. Um, you know, there's there's a national ALEO. There's ALEO London, which I'm the chair of. So if you're working in this space and just want to share best practice case studies, um, our next London meeting is December 7th. If people get in contact with me, um, we can send them the Eventbrite link. Brilliant. Um, if you want more Tanya, you will find her there and myriad other places. All right. So thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Tanya. Thank you at home. Uh, thank you, Alex. Um, thank we you, said Tom. thank you to Jeff or something. <laughs> something. I told him I loved him. That was it. You did tell him you yeah. loved him. It was very sweet. Right. Join ACAN. Join the ACB. Join the IGBC. Ladies, check her own space. Subscribe to Passive House Plus. Advertise if you can. It is an amazing vehicle for it. Check Lloyd Alter's Carbon Upfront blog. Or, yeah, Carbon Upfront. It's in the show notes. Uh, it's not a blog. Well, it is. It's his Substack. I mean, Substack's just a brand for the same thing. Please, review us. Five stars. The apps only want five stars. It is the only one that will make a difference to us. If you could write a written review, that would be delightful. But if you can't be asked, fine. If you can't be asked doing any of it, also fine. Talk to us. If you need any help, you want anything, just give us a shout. We are always delighted to talk about these things. All right. If you've got anything else to plug, is your AJ column going to be a regular thing? It will be in the show notes. Uh, I don't know if it's going to be a regular thing. Um, I was just excited to do it. Um... You know, it's not every day that you get to to just put it out there. Um, 
Cool. No, I'm pretty boring right now. Um, all right. Well, you away and attend to your mother. I am. She might even be here. I don't know. I haven't cool. heard her, but I heard my husband leave. So cool. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you at home. Thanks, thank you for joining us. Um, and uh, I'll speak to you soon. You, Tanya, not you at home. Well, maybe, uh, who knows? Anyway, cheers. Bye. <laughs> Bye. Thank you.